0: to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer.
1: Uh, fun fact, E.K. stands for Euripides Klingon Wimmer. <laughs> and I am your other co-host, Mariah Rose.
0: All right. Glad you put that out into the world. <laughs> My secret's out. <laughs> Grizz from Bad Taste tells everybody it's Ernie Keegan. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's yeah. maybe more believable than <laughs> Euripides Klingon. <laughs> or not.
0: Well, you're listening to the Laser Graves podcast, a podcast about the '80s, and this week we are going to be discussing a movie from one of our f- very favorite directors. A first for Laser Graves, really. Taken over a hundred episodes to finally get to this point. Huh. Yeah.
1: I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah, this is this is sacred territory we're charting on. Okay. Um, but before we get there, how, you, how have you been?
1: You know, I'm hanging in there. We are still, it's 2020, so we're still quarantining hard.
0: Yeah, well, we discussed last episode, last week, that we are now shut back down. The governor shut us Mm -hmm. down, so we had to do our last minute scrambling for thrift store finds. Oh,
1: right. You stockpiled.
0: I did. So I saved mine for this week. Wise. Yeah. But what do you got? Okay. What did you find in the desert, I'm assuming?
1: (laughs) You know me so well, and you know what I saw, or what I found, because I brought it and showed you gleefully. I took a walk today way out into the middle of the desert. My goal was to find bones. Uh, it's actually pretty hard to find bones, because, you know, they break down really fast in the sand here, but I did stumble upon some bones.
0: Yeah, I you were very excited. I found
1: some vertebrae, and I was very jazzed. I think they're coyote. is very cool.
0: Very cool. Yeah. What did you find? So like I mentioned last week, I did find something and mm-hmm. it was something good. So I was like, well, I better save it for next week since we're still shut down. Mm-hmm. This is one of those tapes that's kind of in the same realm of Dance and grannies where oh. I see it just pop up in random people's collections as almost like a joke. Well, okay. it is a joke. But unlike Dance and grannies, it's pretty hard to find okay. and kind of pricey. So really? I was like, whoa, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely buy this. It is the Dolph Lundgren workout video Ooh. maximum potential.
1: I wonder if it's as mesmerizing as uh, Dancing Grannies.
0: Could be. I don't know. You didn't watch it? Not yet.
1: Let's stop this right now and Let's watch it. do
0: the workout. We'll get <laughs> ripped during quarantine. <laughs> Anyway, so that was my thrift store find. That's pretty sweet. It was pretty sweet. It was a pretty good find, actually. It's pricey. Yeah, I saw a couple listed already for like fifty or so. So <laughs> yeah. Well, I just don't think it's that common. So
1: no, I think it's it's niche.
0: Yes, I would say that's a safe safe bet. All right, well, let's get to it. This week we are treading on sacred ground, holy ground of the one and only John Carpenter.
1: Is it holy or is it unholy?
0: It depends on which movie we're watching. Oh, true. So, this one's unholy. <laughs> Although this isn't a devil movie you'd think it is, but it's not.
1: It kind so, of is.
0: Kind of is, kind of isn't.
1: Is it the devil's son? Yeah, it's the devil's son, like uh Lacroix. L- La- <laughs> DC
0: Lacroix. <laughs> it's not Lacroix.
1: <laughs> <laughs> DC Le La Croix.
0: Yeah, this week we're talking about 1987 Prince of Darkness. This is kind of a deep cut for Carpenter films. Because it's one that often gets overlooked, mainly because it is right between Big Trouble and Little China and Mm -hmm. They Live, two very precious films for fans of Carpenter. Mm -hmm. This one gets glossed over pretty easily.
1: It's slower.
0: It is slower, but like all of his films, it immediately was a flop. You know, people didn't like it. And then it grew and grew. This one, I would argue, especially in the horror community... It's probably a, a favorite. Um, it's ones that fans of Carpenter really do love. People who don't know his work very well, maybe haven't even seen it. But over the years, it's just grown and grown. And and it's, for me, one of my favorites, too, because I think it's just unsuspecting. And it's a really well done film. So that's why I thought this would be a fun one to mm. to look at, because everybody talks about all his other more popular ones. But this one often doesn't get enough love.
1: You know, I would say on a subatomic level. <laughs> I like this
0: movie. Okay, good. That's good to know.
1: <laughs> oh, we'll get to it.
0: All right, so Prince of Darkness, so before we before we jump in, let's go over some Kind of who's and how's and what'sies. Oh, so, grandpa. Yeah. Grandpa Euripides. Here's the who'sies of it. <laughs> it was directed by John Carpenter. This was his 10th feature. It was also written by John Carpenter. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Because you might not know it if you look at the credits. And it uh-huh. was composed by John Carpenter with collaboration, as always, from Alan Haworth. If you would like to know, their interesting relationship because I feel like people don't quite get it. Yeah. Even in research for this episode, people, I was, you know, watching reviews of the film and stuff and nine times out of 10, they're like, and then Alan's amazing score that he did. And it just makes me kind of, it's like nails on a chalkboard now. Uh. So he did not do the score. He assisted with the score. If you would like to know what their relationship was, and it's actually really interesting. Uh-huh. I would invite you to join our Patreon because the first debut episode of my special segment, The Chill Factor, was on John Carpenter. And I did discuss this film, but I discuss his entire career. And I spend a long time on his and Alan's relationship and how they work together professionally.
1: Uh, it was so interesting. And actually, you have a new episode out.
0: Yeah, I had an episode that just came out on uh, Cliff Martinez. So the Chill Factor is an in-depth look. There are many episodes, about twenty minutes each, mm-hmm. looking at the life and work of composers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did one on John Carpenter. So he's not technically new to Laser Graves, but we haven't covered him on an episode of you know an actual episode yeah. yet. Yeah. Anyway, look into our Patreon. You can go to Patreon.com/LaserGraves and find all these interesting things that we're doing, and and this is one of them. And I. I really learned a lot in researching it, and I have a better understanding now, even with this soundtrack, how they worked together. Now, as far as production goes for this film, Uh as I mentioned, this was following Big Trouble in Little China, which was a studio film, and I think that was very problematic for him. It still did okay, but it clearly wasn't a blockbuster. Uh I'm sure there was pressure on him, though, to... You know, produce something that would yeah. bring in a little money. It did well. I don't remember what the budget was. It was like, you know, a couple million and still made like 12 or something. So it I, did fine.
1: I think he categorized it as a flop as well, though.
0: Yeah, even though technically it wasn't, it definitely made its money back and a lot more. Just, I think they everybody expected it to do better. And with that pressure, I think John Carpenter was ready to return back to his roots, which yeah. were independent horror, independent filmmaking, and so he just severed ties and said, "I'm I'm going to find a new company to work with, new investors, and start back from the basics."
1: Yeah, I can see that too. Without like all of the studio oversight, I, exactly. I, it allows for a lot more freedom and creative freedom. And actually, before we continue, I wanted to say that he allowed so much. Uh, just kind of insight from anybody on scene. He was open and receptive to all ideas.
0: He consistently not only collaborates with everybody on set, like he allows actors to really bring things to the table, but he also just has a very calm demeanor. He rarely gets flustered on set. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because he... If he does have control over what he's doing, he really does enjoy it quite a bit. I think he just loves the act of filmmaking. Uh And why I mentioned him breaking and going to independent was that was crucial for why he chose to go with this company called Alive Pictures. They signed a multi-picture deal with him over the next few years. And they basically, the stipulation was he would only get $3 million per picture, which is Nothing, considering what he was coming off of. Yeah. And you're talking to the person who's responsible for Halloween. So Mm -hmm. that's nothing. However, he not only thrives in low budget, but he also got total creative control in this arrangement. So that was part of it is we might not give you a lot of money, but we also won't tell you what you can and can't do. And so this is the first film of that new arrangement was Prince of Darkness. Nice. And I think it's cool because it is in stark contrast to Big Trouble in Little China.
1: I think as a creative, that would be way more exciting to have less uh, overhead or oversight and just be able to work, even if it's with less money.
0: I think so. I think it depends on the the filmmaker, though, because Mm -hmm. I would argue that somebody like Steven Spielberg wouldn't be excited to have, like, no budget and total creative control. I think... John I think Carpenter. He gets both. Yeah, he wants both. But I think John Carpenter would like more of a budget, but understands that yes. with more of a budget means more compromise. Also, you know, he was asked, so do you think you do, you produce better work with more limitations? And he was like, no, not necessarily. As a fan of his work and being able to look at his entire body of work, I would argue, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He does his best work with limited resources.
1: I think that's true of like any creative.
0: Yeah, especially really more artistic leaning directors Uh and not more, you know, blockbuster typical Hollywood directors. So he got the deal. So they got $3 million to make this. And at the same time, John Carpenter had been researching and reading a ton of theoretical physics, just for fun on the side, like you do. And it just worked its way into this idea, which I love. I like that he was really interested in it and involved in the the applications of it. And bringing that into horror, I don't know about you, but it gives it this, this kind of Lovecraftian feel, for sure, where things can kind of come in and out of space and time. And I don't think he pushes that as far as it could have gone, and he will later on. But I do like that he's mixing science and religion and all that in this film.
1: Well, it's interesting that you mention Lovecraft because this is the second film in his trilogy, the Apocalypse Trilogy. The other two are The Thing and In the Mouth of Madness. And they're all inspired by Lovecraft.
0: Oh, were they? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that Lovecraft inspired him for this one.
1: Yes, all of them.
0: Okay, well, I mean, the thing being an adaptation of a previous film, and then this one being an original script, and then In the Mouth of Madness, you know, we joke about that all the time, not being able to cover it on here because it's not 80s, but probably, personally speaking, for the Laser Graves household, one of our all-time favorite John Carpenter films. Sure. So, thinking of those three as a trilogy is really cool.
1: Yeah, so they're Lovecraftian-inspired So that doesn't mean a whole lot because, I mean, I could make a weird soup and call it Lovecraftian, but (laughs) um, whatever, that's that's what is said of this.
0: Okay, well, that's neat to know. But he was researching all these theoretical physics and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And he even jokes, you know, John Carpenter's got a great sense of humor. He jokes about just sprinkling in um, big words and big terms that he was reading (laughs) to just give it more weight, even though it was all kind of nonsense. Some of it was... What they're discussing in the film was, you know, actual science at the time. He was just lifting it straight out of what he was reading. Also, I had mentioned this was written by John Carpenter. If you were to look up the credits or see the movie, you would not see him as the writer. You would see Martin Quartermass, which was his pen name. I could not find why he did this. Uh I don't know why he chose to do this, because that is not common for him. And...
1: He did it's, it a couple other times. He did,
0: but he didn't need to. I don't, maybe it was just something funny to do.
1: He's a silly goose.
0: Okay, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> but Martin Quartermass was actually an homage to the British filmmaker, Nigel Neal, because he had this character in one of his stories called Bernard Quartermass. And I found out that he was not too thrilled at that homage because he thought people would confuse him with being involved in this film okay. and didn't want any part of it no grief. <laughs> i know as far as production of location and stuff if you know john carpenter he any excuse to shoot in la he will do it he loves shooting in the city he loves the look of it the feel of it does
1: he just live there and it's an easy commute
0: well, sure. I mean, he lives there, but it's not easy to shoot there. I would argue it's easier to shoot anywhere but LA as far as getting, you know, the license and the, sure, the you know, the permissions and stuff like that. But this was shot in downtown LA. The He only had one day to shoot all of the school stuff, which he did at his old school. Yeah,
1: I saw that. Uh,
0: University of Southern California. If you want to know, know more about his time, again, go listen to my Patreon episode on that. But He also loved the idea of being able to shoot at his former school. So they crammed all that in one day. Sure. And then the church is downtown LA, but only for the exteriors. All the interior shots are shot at a different location. It was an old resort or a mission of some sort, slightly out of town. And I guess it was in horrible condition. Yeah. Like they couldn't even walk around some parts. Well, you can
1: tell that when you look at it.
0: Yeah, but it's really great. I love... You know, John Carpenter's really good about mixing exterior and interior pretty flawlessly. Yeah. And he did that in Assault on Precinct 13, too. Uh, if you're interested in hearing about that film, I would plug our friends at Reconsimation. I was a guest host where we, we talked about that movie. And one of the interesting things he did was mixing the exterior shots with the interiors. And yeah. so there's... There's scenes where they're looking out the window and what they're seeing is, you know, hours away in a different city, but it looks like they're looking right outside. Yeah,
1: And this actually has a very similar vibe to Assault. Um, we talked about that last night after we finished watching it. There's a there's a similar feel of being like trapped in a building.
0: Yeah. And I thought that maybe that was us just coming to that conclusion. But in one of the interviews I was listening to with John Carpenter, he did say that, he makes two types of films, and one of them are siege movies, and that yeah. this is a siege movie. And so I self-aware. thought that was cool. Yeah, he was very self-aware. And I would also say that that's one of the things Carpenter thrives on is limited location. Like the thing. Yeah, just like the thing. And so I I, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. This is a siege movie. When it all comes down to it by the end, they're trapped in a space trying well, to get out.
1: And that actually happens within the Mouth of Madness, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah, it happens time and time again.
1: Oh, I like that. I like that he's kind of trapped in the idea of being trapped.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and the trade-off is, if you give him unlimited resources and budget, you get escape from L.A. and Kurt Russell is, you know, wind surfing a tsunami wave. So,
1: well, but he's know. also trapped. It's true, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that's where this was shot. It was shot over 30 days. That's it. And um, the last thing I wanted to mention before we move on as far as production, I have not seen the more modern Blu-ray transfer of this. I've heard it's pretty gorgeous. I think Shout Factory did it. We just have the VHS, the MCA copy. But it's really beautifully shot. And really the mood of this film is, is pretty incredible. And John Carpenter... He really gives credit where credit's due constantly. Like, he really loves the people he works with. It's like a family. And he fell in love with his cinematographer. His name was Gary Kibb. Or I don't know if it's Kibby, but I think it's just Kibb. This was the first time they had ever worked together. Okay. This was Gary's very first movie that he had shot. And John still to this day thinks that it's like one of the best looking films he's ever done as far as just the feel and the mood and everything like that.
1: There's some really creative shots.
0: Yeah, they were very... And keep in mind, they had like no budget. I mean, and they were pulling in some established actors on this too. So Gary was the one that shot this. And they went on to work on seven more films together. I mean, he worked with John Carpenter all the way up to Ghost of Mars. And John only did, I think, one more film after that. The Ward, maybe. So... They wow. developed a really strong relationship, and it started here. And I okay. think it's it's true. I, I mean, I really do love the the look of this movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting to watch for sure because it's got this uh, real emphasis on light especially once they've entered the church, so much is in darkness and it's mystery. Mm -hmm. So the following of the light is really important in this film.
0: Yeah, it's just beautifully done. But as we mentioned, that was crucial because they didn't have a lot of money to work with. They had to really make it stretch. And considering the actors that they pulled in, uh, it's pretty impressive.
1: Speaking of actors, Mm -hmm. we have a British... Gentleman.
0: Oh, yeah, you do.
1: Maybe. Bring
0: in the royalty.
1: I guess. (laughs) Donald Pleasance is actually known as the character priest in this. There is actually no name for the character, (laughs) just priest. Unless maybe he's going like Madonna style. He's so into Catholicism that he changed his name to priest. Don't think so.
0: I like that idea. I'd also like to think that if he has a named character, he has to be paid more. So to save on money, they just gave him a generic title. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so you'll, you'll recognize Donald Pleasance fr- as Loomis from Halloween.
0: Yeah, he's worked with Carpenter before, not only as Loomis, but he also then was in Escape from New York. So he's like our marquee star, even though he's not really the lead. It's more of an ensemble cast.
1: I I would agree that it is an ensemble cast. We also have Jameson Parker, who plays Brian Marsh. He's a student, and we'll get into his character in a bit, but he is basically the ultimate 1980s tv actor he has a mustache he has some muscles i guess
0: he does have a mustache
1: and uh he's their heartthrob for this movie he is from heart to heart okay which was an 80s staple magnum pi i think he was in a couple episodes he did a tv series called simon and simon which i never saw but it ran for eight years <laughs> So I guess it was a big deal and successful. He also did an episode of Murder, She Wrote, which, of course, oh, wow. yeah, speaks he to my heart.
0: Got around with the 80s. Yes.
1: Yeah, side note. Um, I used to, every night, starting at five, they would do um, Murder, she, Murder, She Wrote and MacGyver back to back. Actually, I think it started at four. And I would watch one after the next, and then it would be dinner time. Wow. Yeah.
0: So he was on Magnum P. I also?
1: Just like an episode or two.
0: Do you think you think he ever walked in and, and Tom Selleck sized up his mustache?
1: No, there's no competition. He <laughs> yeah, has a blonde true. mustache.
0: Yeah, that's true. Definitely you, no competition.
1: If you have a blonde mustache from like ten feet away, it just looks like you have a weird, like blurred lip.
0: <laughs> or like you're having an allergic reaction. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for okay. sure. Also, in our cast we have Victor Wong, who oh, yeah. we who we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, so go back and follow up with our Golden Child episode and figure out more about Victor Wong. He has working wor-
0: my heart ass wife.
1: <laughs> he worked with Carpenter before, obviously on Big Trouble in Little China. And we also have another Big Trouble in Little China alum, uh, Dennis Dunn. Yeah. In this movie, he plays Walter. He's one of the rando scientists. And then we have uh, Lisa Blount. She plays Catherine Danafort. There's like a whole buttload of actors in this movie. And I only mention her because she's kind of important. (laughs) Just a smidge important in the storyline. So keep track of her. And then we also have somebody who's quite important to us. Yes. Somebody whom we have seen in concert
0: live. Somebody who is a return to Laser Graves because in one of our very first episodes... Man, we really did knock out the good ones too early, didn't we? Should
1: we just redo them? We
0: should just re-record all our earlier ones, like uh. Killer Workout. We did Monster Dog with the one and only Alice Cooper, who makes an appearance in this film. And mm-hmm. I'm so happy.
1: Go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear about how you stalked alice cooper in wyoming on a golf course
0: (laughs) yeah i did (laughs) and then i froze up when it came time to go say hi to him it's okay yeah alice cooper is in this too he doesn't have a talking role which he was excited about he said in in an interview i saw that if that character had talked it would have totally ruined it he thought that not talking made the character like way cooler
1: yeah, so let's kind of set the stage for we've we've got some of our cast and let's talk about what happens here. Okay. So, we have kind of a I don't know. It's it's a little unclear what happens. We have an old man. He's at a church. It's like a I don't know. Does he have a bedroom at a church or like Yeah, uh, I think
0: that his a, job is to watch over this door.
1: But he's he's moved. He's at a different church, and he's at a like church hotel for priests, maybe? Mm. I think that's what it is. I think there's an underside to Catholicism that involves church hotels.
0: It's funny because one of the actors that we haven't discussed yet in the commentary for Prince of Darkness asked John Carpenter about this character, and he said, So... Does he get up every day and he checks this door and stuff like that? And John Carpenter said, "Are you asking me about the backstory of this character?" <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I just want to know." And he was like, "Why would I know?" I. I have no idea what he did. It was just really funny because it was like him trying to imply that he had it all figured out, but he didn't. He just started the film literally with this guy dying on a Mm -hmm. bed.
1: Yeah, so I I believe he's away from his place of employ, which is at a church called St. Goddard's, which we'll get to. He's somewhere else. He has a teeny tiny treasure chest on his chest. He dies. A nun finds him and priest played by Mr. Pleasance,
0: becomes intrigued. Why was he not knighted? I'm kind of surprised Donald Pleasance was never knighted. Maybe he was. Sir Donald Pleasance? Probs. I'm going to look it up real quick. Okay. Just looked it up, and it turns out I don't think he was knighted. So when the great battle for England starts, and they have to call upon all of their valiant knights to defend him, like... (laughs) Ian McKellen and Paul McCartney. Uh (laughs) Sadly, the the ghost of Donald Pleasance will not be there to fight the battle.
1: Can you be posthumously knighted? I'm sure you can.
0: Oh, I'm sure you can. (laughs) Let's
1: send a letter to the queen. Anyway, Donald Pleasance as priest discovers the tiny, tiny treasure chest and opens it up. Because you have to. Oh, yeah. And inside is a tiny, tiny... Actually, it's not tiny. It's a gigantic
0: key. It's a very big key for such a small chest.
1: Anyway, where there is a key, there is a lock. And priest goes ahead and finds a secret underground Catholic sect. Yeah. Casually.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's well lit, too. Yeah.
1: Let's go back. Let's go back to the college. Okay. Where there are... I don't know. They're in their 30s.
0: Yeah, if you didn't know the story already and just opened up on this, you would think this was a community college. Yeah. But turns out they're all like post-grad students working on their PhDs in some astral physics or something like that. I don't know what it is.
1: Subatomic levels. It's definitely, there's
0: <laughs> a lot of subatomic level talk.
1: So they, uh, like, let's quickly scoot ahead. These students, along with other students who have not yet been introduced, are all descend on this church to do some research because mm-hmm. the the priest has found what I call a Satan's smoothie in the basement. Mm-hmm. He uses the key, he opens the door and in the back of this like dirty basement is it's just green smoothie swirling and swirling yeah. <laughs> and he really wants all of these post-grad students, not people with actual PhDs, mind you, just. Some students to come and figure it out.
0: Yeah, it looks like a glowing neon green um, lava lamp.
1: Yes, but spinning.
0: But spinning at all times. It actually looks really cool. Victor Wong's character is the professor that oversees this whole quantum physics department or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And all of his grad students are going to get extra grades if they come help him. With this weird request from the priest.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to like happen over the weekend. And they're all going to come there. They're going to stay and they're going to research hardcore on site with students, like grad students from other departments and Mm -hmm. solve the riddle of the uh, Satan soup in the basement.
0: I, this is probably one of my favorite things about this script is the combination of science and religion in this. Mm -hmm. I think it's so cool that they're, working together where you have these scientists who are just trying to figure out you know the the formulas and mechanics mm-hmm. of all this but then you've got this opposing religion saying there's something evil and over time it's like the religion has to accept the science and the science has to accept the religion for them to all come to terms with what they're dealing with being So much greater than both religion or science. It's just way deeper than anybody could imagine. Yes. I think that's a really neat idea.
1: I agree. I agree totally. It's really fun. And it kind of makes you feel uncomfortable because those two rarely meet. And so when they do, you feel like you have to choose a side or something, Mm -hmm. which you don't in this movie. But there's this impulse to do so. And so we begin to meet some of the other students who are there. And it it initially begins as like a lighthearted weekend. Like, oh, shucks. We got to do some research on this weird thing in the basement. But we're going to make the best of it. So in this ragtag team of... (laughs) scientists and almost scientists. We get a character, I don't even know the name, but it's played by Peter Jason. Mm-hmm. And he actually worked with Carpenter on They Live, After This, In the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned, Escape from LA, and Ghost of Mars. Mm-hmm. So, they have quite a quite a relationship from here forward, but he is I think his only important role in this film is that he
0: Does uh, Mouth Trumpet. He does. He does a lot of kind of on-the-spot, clever thinking.
1: He does some weird, like, bippity-boppity-boo with an apple that he's bouncing around, which, if you look into the trivia, is supposed to be a little nod to the original Sin. And he plays Mouth Trumpet, which nobody made a nod to any original Sin. But I feel like we could argue that Mouth Trumpet is a sin.
0: He was the one who did the commentary with John Carpenter. Okay. And man, he's a character. He's really funny. And basically he was just wandering around set doing that trumpet sound. Uh And John Carpenter said, oh, you should just do that. And so he just did it. And he said all the other um, actors were pretty annoyed by the end of it. Uh Uh-huh. I could see that. Man, he's a character. He's really funny.
1: So yeah, he got to improvise the the mouth trumpet Apple situation and Jamison Parker, who does a lot of stuff with cards. And as we were watching it, I was like, why is he doing so many things with cards? What's that all about? <laughs> that was also his suggestion. So this is what happens when you let actors like, guide the ship
0: bring their talents to the set guess what i can do a card trick guess what mouth trumpet you know what though that's i would much rather have (laughs) an actor come to set and be like did you know i can do card tricks maybe we can work this in instead of the typical one that's like did you know that i'm really interested in having a musical career can i sing a song on this although do you kind of want to watch a movie where you just tell actors to improv (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, I guess.
1: I don't know. It would either be the most amazing film ever made or the most terrifying thing we've ever seen.
0: I don't know. It'd kind of be like a Donald Jackson film where he just let everything kind of improv naturally, remember, by the end.
1: Donald Jackson?
0: Who did Rollerblade. And then Uh, remember by the end, he developed this whole technique where it was all kind of improv'd anyway.
1: I feel like if you truly let actors improv till the end, it would end with them crying in front of a mirror. Yeah,
0: and asking (laughs) why they couldn't get paid more. You know, also speaking of actors and their talents, we mentioned them a little bit, but we should bring back that we do get to also see Alice Cooper here. He's king of the homeless.
1: Yeah, that's his only role.
0: Yeah, he, well, he was originally supposed to be just one of the homeless. Mm-hmm. And then John Carpenter realized, wait, we've got Alice Cooper. He looks cool. Let's make him kind of the leader of the, the homeless here. And, and
1: you can tell he's the leader because he stands in front of the other homeless people. Yeah. That's
0: all. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool. We'll We'll mention him some more as time goes on. But all these characters kind of all start to... Reveal themselves simultaneously. One of the things about this film that we should mention that doesn't often get talked about, but is you'll you'll notice it the more you watch it, is that John Carpenter said that he didn't write this in a three act structure like most films, mm-hmm. but he meant for this to be a slow and gradual build where it just keeps building momentum and just goes and goes and goes till the very end and then just ends. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. I like that because what you get are these kind of general introductions. And then these characters like Alice Cooper's character just start to be introduced and it starts to build tension and get progressively more bizarre. And then before you know it, you're like, how did I even get to where we're at right now?
1: So we have all of these scientists at a church and outside are a team of homeless people, I guess, who are assembling. They're supposed to be like soulless. Each time uh, the characters now are looking up at the sky and it's something that doesn't really make a ton of sense. I mean, they are, it's kind of tied together, but in general, it, it's not very clear why people randomly look up at the sky and when they do they see a, a like a crescent moon. It's aligned with the sun and apparently it's a nod to 2001 A Space Odyssey.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, You know, what's interesting is this does have elements, especially early on in the film, of more of like a plague film, where it seems like it's the second coming. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Carpenter, he's a weird dude when he talks about his films. I feel like he forgets some stuff and makes some stuff up after the fact. But he was saying, you know, this isn't a movie about Satan and the devil, but it kind of is a movie about Satan and the devil. And I feel like... It's a little unclear.
1: It's supposed to be about Satan's son.
0: Right. It's like the ultimate evil that...
1: Like the opposite of Christ. And it implies that Jesus is an alien.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what he was saying. Is he saying it's not about the devil. It's about the anti-God and that there's a difference there. The anti-God is like the opposite of all creation.
1: One of the scientists, whose name incidentally is Lisa, she begins to translate... I guess the writing around the glass cylinder and in the boxes. I don't know.
0: She's pretty smug about her translation too. She's looking she at this be. ancient text nobody has ever seen. And she's like, this should be easy. I'm a you know, post-grad student. And then she does the fake hacker thing where she's like typing. But she's really just tapping random keys but making it look like she types really fast.
1: I do that sometimes when I'm by myself.
0: I do too. I've definitely done that.
1: So she uncovers that a glass cylinder was buried in the Middle East like a million years ago. And it was buried by Father Satan, who is an anti-God or the anti-God, and that God was the ruler of planet Earth. And anti-Satan or anti-God, I guess, had been exiled by humans, even though this is a million years ago. We're playing...
0: Seven million years ago, wasn't Mm -hmm.
1: it? Millions. Let's just go with that. Uh, But he sealed his own son, who is either Satan or the son of Satan. It's a little unclear. Uh, And sealed him into this jar as a Satan smoothie. And they're just waiting for the time. But we're also following along with the timeline of time travel. And (laughs) in this translation, Jesus was an extraterrestrial. He had a human shape. He came from another world to protect humans from Satan or anti-God. And they imprisoned anti-God Satan, baby. I don't know.
0: Into the green smoothie?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Until the time when the human race possessed a level of technology in which they could defeat him. And okay. apparently that time is either 1997, 1987 or 1999 because we also get time travel dream flashes.
0: The dream flashes are actually really cool. He shot that on video and then he said that he would play the footage in like through a TV and film that to give it more of this static kind of dream element. Mm-hmm. I love that footage of the the dream shots. And what's interesting is one of the one of the little subplots in this is that when you're in close proximity to this smoothie machine, you share dreams and everybody starts sharing the dream mm-hmm. of of this f- kind of dark hooded figure that's you know in a in an archway of the church
1: in the basement, yeah,
0: that's supposed to be um, like a message from the future. <laughs> okay. Now that we're saying this all out loud...
1: It's bonkers.
0: It sounds a little bonkers. But when you watch it, it kind of flows pretty pretty easily.
1: It's okay. I would say that the dream sequence is actually the origin story for this whole film. Yeah. Because it was somebody that Carpenter knew, I don't remember who, had had a dream like that.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. And
1: he built this movie around that.
0: Yeah. But they basically have now... Started to work on it. Some of them believe it. Some of them don't. Weird
1: things are happening outside. Yeah,
0: things are starting to go bad. Worms are starting to show up on the windows. Bugs are starting to crawl around. Mm-hmm. But to move things forward, the canister finally breaks open. And it sprays one of the one of the women. It sprays her in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And now, like, evil has gotten into her body. Mm-hmm. So there's that happening.
1: Yep, no problem. We also problem. have
0: this other aspect where one of the... One of the characters gets bumped and gets a bruise and is now impregnated by Satan's baby.
1: Is she pregnant? That is a...
0: It's like she's incubating the creature.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know.
0: <laughs> it's all very weird.
1: Meanwhile, so things are getting a little ooky spooky inside the church. The church is actually St. Goddard's. And I forgot to tell you, I read a factoid that if you... Rearrange not all of the letters, but some of the letters in St. Goddard's. You can get anti-God.
0: Okay. That's not really anything, though.
1: No, it's really
0: not. That's like saying, did you know that if you change the numbers, you could get this number? Yeah. Okay.
1: Change some of the numbers and left some out. Yeah. Like (laughs) if you
0: wanted the number 50 and you had 10 and 40 five you would have (laughs) to change it to 10 and 40 and then you would get 50 isn't that crazy
1: we should talk about uh alice cooper's kill Mm. so he has a a bike with spike and he uses it to kill one of the scientists who who've had their fill.
0: yeah you know what's interesting about that is that that comes from his live show there's more to the story of Alice Cooper's little cameo in this film, okay, than you think. you know what? Let's just do it. this this week's fun fact. Wow Alice Cooper's involvement is pretty interesting because when I originally read up on it, I got the impression that John Carpenter like went to a concert or something and saw him do this act where he would take a mic stand and impale somebody. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, that's cool. That is cool. But that's not how he was involved at all. That's not how they met or anything like that. It's, It's more interesting. So what happened was Alice Cooper's manager, the legendary Shep Gordon, who if you guys don't know about him, he's quite the character was one of the producers of this movie. I had no clue that he produced movies as well. He actually produced quite a few John Carpenter movies. Huh. I think he must have been involved in this new company. But he was the manager for Alice Cooper, but also the producer for Prince of Darkness, and made the suggestion to John Carpenter that he should include Alice Cooper as like in a, uh, one of his songs or something in the movie, which did end up happening. Mm-hmm. The Prince of Darkness song uh, Alice Cooper wrote. And then it's played briefly in this movie. I think you can hear it through somebody's headphones or something like that.
1: While they're being killed. Yeah, while they're being killed.
0: But how he agreed to meet him was Shep Gordon invited him to WrestleMania 3, where Alice Cooper was like Jake the Snake Roberts guest and was ringside. What's funny about this is I've been working through all the Wrestlemanias in a row, just rewatching them all in order. Okay. And I had just watched this not like 2 weeks ago. Oh weird. And so this is fresh in my mind. It's hilarious because there's this like decrepitly skinny, he looks like Mr. Burns, Alice Aww. Cooper among all these titans of wrestling at the time. But apparently John Carpenter went and met him at WrestleMania and talked to him about having a, you know, a song. And Alice Cooper said, actually, I'd love to have a you know role. I'd love to be in the horror movie. And John Carpenter said, yeah, that's awesome. And then found out about this gag that he did with the mic stand and mm-hmm. said, that would be really cool. Do you think you could do that with a bicycle? And Alice Cooper said, sure. And so not only does he do it in the film, but it's Alice Cooper that rigs that that whole special effect. So John Carper didn't bring in special effects to do that. He let Alice Cooper completely control that whole kill.
1: Oh, fun. And he's just
0: using the the technique that he uses on stage every night. It's really awesome. I mean,
1: why would you hire somebody else when Alice Cooper does it so well? Yeah. Also, if you ever, if quarantine ever ends and you have a chance to see Alice Cooper in concert, it doesn't matter that he is 9 billion years old now. Don't even put that in your pocket of worries. His shows are worth it. Oh, there's
0: so much fun. I've seen him a couple times now. They never cease to entertain. They're fabulous. He is quite the character. He
1: is a showman, and you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't go see him. (laughs) There, I said it. Okay, so, oh my gosh, where are we in this crazy story? So, okay, we have... Lisa, who has a bruise, or no, Kelly, has a bruise. She's uh-huh. one of the student scientists. And she is possibly pregnant or maybe just bloated
0: with Satan's spawn. I think she's pregnant. I think she's, like, growing it inside.
1: But it kind of deflates, and she never gives birth. <laughs> they they say that it, evil needs a host, like a parasite. So I think she's the host for the evil. However, that... Happens. Meanwhile, a bunch of the other scientists are either being killed or puking Satan's stew into another scientist's face and turning them into zombie characters. That's, I mean, basically what happens for like 25 minutes. Oh, and, and everybody else runs.
0: The character, Susan, who mm-hmm. had the devil juice put the into The initial her one, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to mention one of my favorite parts, and I don't know if this was an inside joke, but it had to have been is every time somebody asks about her in the movie, like, do you know who she is? Yeah. Where is she oh, at? Yeah, I know. They you. always go, Susan. And then somebody goes, like, who? And they go, radiologist. Classes. Yep. I love that. It By the like third or fourth time, it makes me laugh pretty hard.
1: Well, I think it was actually there for a reason. Because I think they were showing, like, emphasizing that she, after getting the satan smoothie on her face she stops wearing glasses because uh satan like healed her okay it like the power of satan made her not need glasses anymore
0: oh. see all the more reason hollywood just makes it so appealing because we... then you don't even need latex you just worship satan and you don't need glasses
1: yeah whatever um also i wanted to say so we've made some jokes about them <laughs> talking about subatomic particles because I was keeping a tally.
0: (laughs) You did. You had a little tally on your sheet.
1: And then I stumbled upon this little factoid. So they were talking about the reoccurring dream that everyone's having. And one of the characters talks about uh, tachyons. (laughs) And in physics, tachyon comes from the Greek Greek words of tachy and ion, which means fast going. And it's a a theoretical subatomic particle (laughs) (laughs) that is capable of moving faster than light. So it kind of played into this time travel thing that's. They're like loosely playing with, but never giving any real concrete idea.
0: I love it. You know, this all sounds like absolute nonsense, but I love all of it. I think that that's what makes this film so cool. <laughs> Honestly, it's just got this weird sub story and subplot of all this science and time travel. We didn't mention, but the whole time travel thing is also overseen by this group called the Brotherhood of Sleep, which is the ancient order that the priest at the very beginning was part of, Mm -hmm. overseeing this evil and keeping them locked away. But the Brotherhood of Sleep also receives messages, group messages from the future. It's just, all of it is so much fun. I I really do enjoy it. It's not a sci-fi film by any means.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a Satan sci-fi.
0: You think this is a sci-fi film?
1: Yes, it's all about time travel.
0: It's not all about time travel. It's all about about the return of the anti-god.
1: Time travel and Satan. Boom. Sci-fi.
0: See, you got science and religion. Perfect mix.
1: There we go. Okay, so we have our remaining scientists in one room. And in a closet, we have Walter, who is another scientist. He's trapped by a couple of, like, devil scientists. And they are just watching as the possibly pregnant scientist, uh, Kelly, is laying on a bed, letting her metamorphosis happen.
0: You know, Donald Pleasance during this time, too, just kind of disappears and lets everybody else do all the acting. But I I want to mention him real quick, because he's kind of, he hams it up, you know, he's been in all kinds of movies, and sometimes he phones it in, sometimes he doesn't. I, I saw him in something not too long ago, what was it like? Uh, maybe War- Warrior Queen or something like that. Man, sure. he just wasn't even trying in that one. But he's also been in really cool ones like Warrior the Lost World. A really cool one you haven't seen and I want you to see. Maybe we can do it sometime for the show. Is called Paganini Horror. It's, a, it's an Italian film. It's kind of a rock horror movie in a way.
1: Cool, I'm in.
0: Yeah, I, I think you'd like it. But uh, I honestly think this is one of his better roles. Donald Pleasance is really good in this and Mm -hmm. his delivery, his character, everything. Solid. If you're a Donald Pleasance fan and haven't seen Prince of Darkness, I would highly recommend it for that. So even though he kind of fades away kind of towards the middle of the film.
1: Well, he can't do anything.
0: He's really good in this movie. There's some actors that don't bring their all to this and then there are some that do and it's a really interesting mix. Yeah, he does well. When you have an ensemble cast like that, you know, who's... Who's pulling the weight and who's not? But I don't know.
1: So we have Walter who escapes with the other scientists. And then there's this big confrontation because Kelly, who is now rotted away, uh, she's like half like, I don't know, skin skin face. I don't know.
0: She looks like a burn victim.
1: Kind of. Yeah. And she, so she's now, I guess, the host for Satan, Satan's (laughs) son. Anti-God. Because, well, she's reaching out and calling to father. So there's this whole mirror finger thing. So And this is really cool. And I've got some fun information about this. So she sticks her finger through the mirror in this and is like, father. And there are two shots. Two different things happen. One is she sticks her finger through the metal of the mirror or the reflective surface and what they did is they gathered up through their equipment a bunch of mercury <laughs> which holy guacamole don't mess around with mercury uh, and they used it like a dummy's hand because they at least knew that mercury is very toxic and they used that to create this mirror effect but if you look at it closely it, you can tell that it's like a dummy hand because it doesn't move
0: it is so cool looking uh-huh. so Yeah, that's a really interesting fact about this movie is because they didn't have a lot of money, they were getting creative in general with Mm -hmm. the effects. But this one in particular, John Carpenter, I I saw him talk about this in one of the interviews. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this is going to be the fun fact for the week. And then I realized he talked about it in every single interview. Because it's a fun fact. Because it's a fun fact, yeah. (laughs) But he had a different plan to get that mirror shot, to put the hand into the mirror, and it just wasn't working Mm -hmm. out. And then they realized it's totally illegal. They did not have permission to do this at no. all because it's highly toxic. Is that the crane, the dolly crane that they had was filled with mercury in the bottom. and then Which this, is bonkers. So they just drained it, did the shot, and then put it all back in and didn't say anything and returned yeah. it. Yeah. But the end result is probably one of the coolest shots in the entire film. It's
1: amazing. And there, there are two shots because there's another one. Uh, Where the character's fingers are poking through into the darkness. And that's just shot inside of a covered swimming pool.
0: That looks so great, though. It's
1: fabulous. So she's trying to... Kelly, who is now, like, half rotten, is trying to pull, I guess, the anti-god through the mirror into the real world and, like, thus end human life. And this is where Catherine, who has been kind of secondary this whole time... She takes this opportunity to dive at Kelly and like tackle her through the mirror. Yeah, and that's it.
0: Like, like she's going to prevent the end of of human ex- of the world basically mm-hmm. by sacrificing herself in a way.
1: Yeah, and actually, right before that, we should say that the pastor cut off or the priest, excuse me, cut off Kelly's arm and her head.
0: Oh, but she puts it back on. Oh, it's so good, man there's some uh, John Carpenter was talking about that scene too. And he was saying like how Donald Pleasants, they were all just having a blast with it. The effects are so awesome. We didn't even talk about earlier in the the film. There's a scene where this guy's taken over by bugs and then just falls apart because he's like created into bugs.
1: The guy that says caca. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: The effects in this are just so incredible. I think that's where, upon rewatching or revisiting why it gained the cult status it did mm-hmm. is when you watch it and you realize what they were working with and what they accomplished.
1: Yeah, there's like... So awesome. Yeah, there's so many little details that are great. And actually... After the tackle through the mirror situation, all of the people that have been like possessed, including the homeless people, they like a breath of smoke goes through their mouth. So that's how you know it's over.
0: And the whole like into the mirror where they're then just floating in darkness. Ugh. That reminds me of what's the film that we watched. We've watched it quite a few times now with Scarlett Johansson, The Under the Skin. Is that what Yeah, yeah. It kind of got that feel to mm-hmm. it. Just that otherworldly Mm non-existence real creepy it's just beautifully done and keep in mind we haven't even mentioned because it's just kind of a given this is one of my all time favorite John Carpenter scores and he's one of my biggest inspirations for my own music and I love all of his scores but this is a real sleeper you know people don't talk about this when they talk about his scores but Prince of Darkness is a brilliant score and the whole time this is happening You've got just this pulsating, really dark synth with this choir over the top of it. So it's got this kind of old school religious yeah. feel. L- old and new. It is just incredible. And it's all building the score even as it's going like these scenes get more and more intense mm-hmm. and the score builds on top of it to where by the very end of this film, it's just it's amped up and it's really cool. I just I yeah. love it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And then also the movie ends with our lead, I guess, lady, Catherine. She's now like the dream demon.
0: Yeah. And how we know this is that Mustache McGee gets up and he looks at the mirror. Mm -hmm. And this leaves it very open-ended. Like we don't know what's happening. But he reaches out towards the mirror. This is John Carpenter at his finest. This is probably one of the best endings he's ever done. And here's why. And he talks about it. He knew exactly what he was doing, is that he had already established that you could put your hand through the mirror and Mm -hmm. it would look cool and crazy things happened. So he intentionally, the music's building and it's this really slow shot of our lead reaching his hand slowly towards the mirror. And -hmm. it's building and building and building. And right before his fingertips touch, John Carpenter knew he didn't have to do the scene again because people's minds were already ready. And he cuts the film to credits right before his fingertips touch. And it's so effective. I mean, it is a really great ending, yeah, And it just leaves you going like, "Whoa, that was awesome." And that's Prince of Darkness, which is interesting because, as we mentioned, it's John Carpenter's story is filled with immediate um disinterest in in his films. And then a slow gain in cult status. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what happened with this one as well. This was released on October 23rd, 1987. I mentioned it had a $3 million budget. It went on to make $14 million, which is fine. But the critics were not good to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them were just like, this is an absolute disaster of a yeah. film. This sucks. But man, it built a real following over time. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode... It now really does stand as, as just a, a pretty incredible horror film that's often overlooked. I just people don't talk about it enough. I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. Well, it's
1: not high gore. Uh, no, so it's I more th- high
0: concept more than anything. Oh. Well, for a John Carpenter film, I mean, I would there's say it a is. lot
1: of subatomic particle.
0: <laughs> yeah, there is.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I think it's 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 a really great film, and I think he actually left it open for a sequel.
0: Which, you know, I don't know, it never came, but in theory, part of his trilogy, then it would make In the Mouth of Madness, the kind of follow up conceptually, Uh which I would say is an even maybe more effective film.
1: Oh, yeah, I would agree.
0: But wow, I mean, I I was really impressed. Now, we didn't talk about this at the beginning either. Was this a first time watch for you?
1: Yeah, it really was.
0: Okay, so what were your thoughts then?
1: I really enjoyed it, but I would say that I have one lingering question and that's why do people now uh from the 90s forward wear sweaters around their like waists when i think in the 80s it was like more effective to wear a sweater over your shoulders like a cape (laughs) (laughs) i don't know these are the questions that will keep me up at night but it was a good movie i enjoyed it
0: i did too and i highly recommend it this was not a first time watch for me at all but it it's really, I just think it's gets better with every watch. I think it's worth watching if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. If it's not your thing and you're bored by it, whatever. But it works for me on, on all levels. I, I just think it's a really cool film. Mm-hmm. So go check it out. It's available everywhere. It's not hard to find. It's a John Carpenter film. Get after it. Get after it. That's all we got for you this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't seen it, Dust it off the shelf and watch it. Mm-hmm. Now's a good time. I do love that they released it so close to Halloween. I always appreciate when horror movies yeah, come out. Close I noted to Halloween. that too. That's pretty cool. Well, if you like what you heard, uh, the best thing to do to help us is to rate, review, and subscribe. We're on iTunes and Spotify, Podbean, all that kind of stuff.
1: Those reviews make a huge difference to yeah, us. Yes,
0: they really do. And you can follow us. We are on Instagram at lasergraves.com. Or you can go to lasergraves.com and also listen to all of our back episodes. As we've been mentioning now, our Patreon is in full effect. We've got quite a few episodes now. So if you join, you do get instant access to anything we've already done in the past. And
1: we've got a new uh, time travel episode coming at you pretty quick here.
0: Yeah, that's right. Friday will be our brand new time travel episode. So get in on it while it's good. That's at patreon.com slash lasergraves. And then if you want to follow us on our personal sites on Instagram, I'm at death at 33 RPM.
1: I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer.
0: And as always, go support fellow podcasters out there and our friends, because we're all just trying to do our best to bring you some joy and happiness in these crazy times. But until next week, thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye.